All right, everybody. So today on the podcast, we have Milo Wolf. How are we doing, Milo? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, man. So I guess I first saw you, it was a while back, maybe a year ago, um, because you were with RP, right? That's correct. Okay. And then now, are you with another group? Are you solo? Yeah. So technically, I'm also working for Strong by Science now as a coach. But uh, the way that deal is set up is if you're a coach for Strong by Science, you can also do your own thing and coach for any other number of companies, including your own. So it's a very nice job in the sense that, you know, just because you're tied to Strong by Science doesn't mean you're exclusively a Strong by Science coach. Gotcha. Nice. Okay, cool. And I saw, I think I saw you maybe, but probably around the same time I first introduced you, I saw competition pictures. So just for a little background for people who are newly introduced to you, how long have you been lifting? How long have you been competing? Yeah. So I've been lifting for around eight years now. Started when I was 14. I'm 22 now. Um, I've competed in both powerlifting and bodybuilding once. Uh, both of them, I mostly did to get the experience of it and see whether or not I enjoyed it. I would say I'm a bit better suited to bodybuilding. And I did my first comp pretty much exactly a year ago now. It was in mm-hmm. October 2021. And yeah, that's kind of my background as far as lifting goes. And on the side, I'm also a coach. I've been coaching for around four years. And I'm doing my PhD in sports science, as I'm sure we'll discuss later, on okay. the effects of range of motion on strength and hypertrophy. Right. Cool, cool. And you look like a pretty tall guy. How tall are you and what did you compete at? I'm 6'2". So I competed in men's bodybuilding open in the tall class. Gotcha. Okay. And what weight did you come in at? So I wasn't... <laughs> I did a bod pod a few days before my show and I uh, was like 4.8%. Hmm. But realistically, to be like my best stage condition, I was probably like, eh, at least five pounds off true stage condition. Like I had right. some striations in my glutes, but I wasn't like fully strided and everything. Sure. But I came in at 200 pounds on stage at 6'2". Wow. Yeah, that's a big guy, man. Damn. <laughs> Thank you. Be on stage at that size. It's so funny that now these days it's like, well, I had strided glutes, but they weren't strided enough. You know, it's just like the different level of conditioning. Dude, 100%. And it's funny you say that because I was speaking to Mike Isertel, for example, and I sent him some show pics and everything. And um, he asked me, was the show tested? Because in the UK, there are so few shows going on, especially with big name federations like the WMBF. That was the first show the WMBF ever did in the UK. There are so few shows that the standard, especially post-COVID, where for a long time there were no shows, the standard in the UK for shows is quite high. Mm. And so like on stage, I was up against people who all had very top tier level conditioning um and who like i genuinely believe would do really well on the national stage you know so it was it was humbling let's say yeah yeah now in the uk i guess because since mike was asking about if it was tested or not i I, are performance enhancing drugs legal over there yes so for personal use as long as you have under a certain amount in your possession i think they're legal um i will say the wmbf does a great job of testing so what they do is I think they test one third of all competitors randomly. And on top of that, they test all the winners of every class at the show. So I got tested actually, and I came, came out natty. So that's always there you go. Uh, comforting, but yeah, yeah, right. they, they do a very good job. Cool. Cool. So I guess the way we got introduced was you were on the podcast with Brian Borstein and Alex Straker, uh, and they were talking about my cat experiment, right? And, you know, this has been mentioned a few times where after... I don't know, because now I've been looking for probably 18 years. So after maybe 15 years, 
I was like, all right, so stuff is just not really working here. Let's just see what happens. So I stopped training my left calf, which is now going on probably over two years. I have to look at the exact date. Uh, and, you know, basically there's been no change. What I mean, literally to like the 16th of an inch, it's exactly the same. And I think I tagged you on Instagram. And I believe your direct quote was, you have no idea what you're doing. You don't know how to train calves and you need to buy my calf training program and get me on the podcast. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, I think it was a bit more inflammatory in my response. I called you a few slurs as well, but um, this is a PG to just podcast, like, so I try to keep it tame. So, I don't mind. So, uh, you know, I, I guess you were surprised, which I was surprised too. I, I mean, I knew the calves were very stubborn for me, uh, but even I'm surprised that literally just stopping training hasn't, you know, changed anything. Now, I will say I do intervals usually like twice a week. We all know that, you know, muscle in general is easier to maintain than it is to build. So it could just be that my 15 inch calves is just what I built up to. And now through my other leg work through, you know, the occasional running or biking, uh, it's just enough stimulus to maintain it, which, you know, is a possibility. Uh, but I, I'm still surprised. And I will say I've done similar experiments with other muscle groups. Like, so for example, my thighs, I was like, okay, well, let's just see how much this or that matters. And so I was doing mostly isolations for my thighs for a while, like quads and hamstrings, and even doing like, you know, the uh, abduction and adduction machines. And then I said, okay, just on my left side, I'm going to add leg press. And you're talking like three to six sets per week. And after six months, there was a little over half an inch difference there. So clearly in that case, it did make a difference. And I would have been very surprised if it didn't, right? To have like no sort of pressing volume or anything. So it did make a difference there. And I would imagine with most other muscle groups, it would. Um, so I guess if you want to give some initial thoughts, but I know we'll go back and forth a lot on that. Yeah. So honestly, first of all, that's a pretty crazy approach to take to test out an idea. So props to you for that. Yeah. Um, with regards to calves being influenced genetically, because I think that's where we'll wind up going with the discussion. Yep. I think it's interesting to know the difference between muscle bellies and muscle size, right? So like how a muscle is shaped for an individual can make a big impact on how big it looks or how impressive it looks. I mean, the calves are a common example where you see untrained people walking around with calves that look absolutely massive that you know you could never achieve with your puny 15-inch natty ceiling for your calves. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the same also goes for other muscle groups, right? Like you all know a person who in high school just has bulging biceps and you're like, dude, you've never even lifted a weight. Why do you have those? Um, so I think muscle bellies and fat storage can really impact the appearance of stuff. Oftentimes, like when I've measured, for example, I've got a friend uh, who competes in physique and he's always had just crazy muscle bellies and has always been pretty lean. And from the looks of it, you think, dude, you're jacked. So like you have at least 18 inch arms and so forth. But then when you measure him, his arms are actually like 16 inches. And oftentimes muscle bellies can give the impression of being quite large when in reality, they're not quite as large. So with impressive calves, like with impressive biceps in untrained people, I think it can often be a combination of some predisposition towards having bigger calves by nature, some predisposition towards having good muscle bellies. And finally, for men especially, for women as well, the calves aren't a place where people store a lot of fat, no matter what sort of body weight they get to. So men typically store a lot of fat around their midsection, right? They have sort of the apple, quote unquote, uh, fat distribution, um, which means generally their arms and legs are relatively lean, especially as you get closer to the um, far out extremities, like for example, your forearms and your calves. 
And so I think those three factors together explain a lot of why the Cavs might look big on some untrained person, but um, for some people just don't seem to get much bigger or what have you. So I definitely think the muscle belly argument is valid. Um, you know, if you know Abel Chavai, he and I both have 15 inch calves. His might be like 15 and a quarter. Uh, but if you were to look at him, you would not even just say he has average calves. You would say he has solid calves and his, his limbs in general, even though we're almost the same height, his limbs in general are much shorter than mine. Uh, we actually measured just from our hip to our, you know, to the bottom of our feet. And even though we're both about six, one, I had, I think two and a half inches of length on that, on him there, which is pretty substantial. Um, so that combined with a, just a lower insertion for him, it, it makes a dramatic difference in how they appear. So I do agree with that. And I would also say that in asking people's measurements and whatnot, a lot of people who you might think like, man, this guy's arms look so big or his calves look so big there oftentimes, unless the person's a pretty serious lifter, it's rare that the measurements are above 16 inches or so. Like sometimes some guys I see with great calves, it's like, oh, it's 15 and a half inches, you know? So, um, I definitely do agree that that's a big part of it. I, I still, as you mentioned, though, see some pretty extremes where I personally, I, I don't know of anybody I can think of that they literally do not work out. They're just an inactive person and they just have amazing arms, like just like standout crazy arms. But I have seen some just like, just, and, and sometimes it's like a toe walker, right? So maybe there's an influence there, but just 13 or 12 inch arms and absurdly big calves. And it's just like, you know, what is going on there that it's such a discrepancy? Yeah. So I think it boils down to what you potentially mentioned earlier as to why your left calf, is that the way you're not training? Mm -hmm. Your right calf. Yep. As to why your left calf might've maintained pretty well. I do think, especially with sprinting, for example, the forces you expose your calves to are relatively large and there is some concentric and eccentric actions going on. And the range of motion you take your calves through isn't small either. So it's not as though it's like an isometric contraction with not much load. Now, do I think that would be enough to grow your calves maximally? No, I think the people with amazing calf genetics who just have good calves without training with weights would have even better calves with weights. Like for example, the only person that comes to mind now is Jared Fellow, right? Mm -hmm. Very good muscle bellies for the calves. Um, but his calves have gotten substantially bigger as he trained with weights, but they already looked impressive before he started lifting, right? Um, so I think it's a combination of day-to-day -day and general sporting activities being somewhat effective for hypertrophy of the calves with people having great muscle bellies for the calves sometimes. Those two together, I think, explain why you see people walking around with calves better than mine will ever be. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And I guess, you know, there's no, you know, something I kind of, you were saying how the walking and, and, you know, with high body weights can make a substantial difference. And I said, well, it's somewhat jokingly, but I was like, you know, imagine if we said that about any other muscle group, like, okay, well, with biceps, you're going to do partials to a 1000 RIR, right? Like nobody would say, well, that's going to get somebody huge biceps. We don't really have that experiment, you know, maybe if somebody was super blessed. And, and I guess one, kind of example of that not really but you know you do see on average like construction workers and whatnot tend to have a little bit more muscle mass even though nothing they're doing is remotely close to failure um if, do you remember chad waterbury from t nation he might have been before your time um yeah, I think time. yeah this was like at least a decade ago and he was big on full body training super high frequency training and he would always talk about like look at these gymnasts look at these construction workers and I don't totally obviously agree with the methodology there, but the concept I think is relatively sound that you see people who are doing something a lot and 
like you said, maybe it's not maximally developed, but you'll see certain body parts develop just by high, high, high volume and repetition, even if it's it's relatively low intensity. So I, I don't think it's invalid, I should say. Yeah, so I think there's some truth there. I think there's two things to keep in mind. The first is with untrained people, right? People who've never lifted a weight and so forth. People over, often overestimate what sort of training it takes to get any sort of adaptation going. With If you ever train a beginner, like a complete beginner, honestly, even a set to 10 reps away, 15 reps away, 20 reps away from failure might be enough to cause some decent growth. And so when you combine that with, say, sporting activities that you're, you've never been exposed to, you know, novelty might play a role as well. Um, that might just be enough to cause some growth, even though it's, you know, as you said, a thousand reps away from failure or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that somewhat explains things for leaner people, but it especially explain it, explains it with overweight or obese people in that with sufficiently overweight or obese people, walking becomes actually pretty difficult, you know? Like the load involved isn't negligible anymore. Um, oftentimes, overweight and obese individuals might be quite sedentary, and so they're not exactly used to walking either. So it's also some novelty. It's it being kind of close to failure at that point. And as I said, the range of motion involved and the forces involved might not be so negligible anymore. Um, so I think for overweight or obese people that then eventually lose weight, that might be part of it. Maybe they're just able to maintain their calves pretty well as they lose that body fat that they've been keeping on top of their sizable calves already. Um, as, I, as I said, I think there is some element that's difficult to explain as to why calves might be more genetically predisposed than other muscle groups. Yeah. And I, I was trying to think about a good way to verbalize this concept. But one thing I was trying to think out, and it would actually be in favor of your argument or Schoenfeld's argument, who, who said that if there's not a difference in the genetics there, would be if you were to imagine, let's say, your arms could grow to 18 inches, you know, at your genetic peak, but your calves could grow to, let's say, 15 inches. I guess you could make an argument that they are more stubborn, but maybe you could get, like, the percentage of maximal growth could be the same for both along the way. So even though it stays smaller, so you feel like this is more genetically influenced, and you, I guess you could make an argument as well to counter that, that by not having as much potential for growth, that is inherently a greater genetic influence, i.e. closer to its start. But you could also say, well, each one is now 70% maxed out, or each one is 80% maxed out, which would argue that it's not necessarily genetically influenced. I don't know if I'm verbalizing that correctly, but hopefully that comes across. No, you're making a lot of sense. I think that's true. And I also think, (laughs) let's conceptualize it this way. Let's say you have a genetic ceiling for your arms and for your calves, right? But your day-to-day activities take your calves closer to failure than your arms. Like most of the time, your arms don't get anywhere close to failure just doing like, you know, sitting at your desk, walking and so forth. Whereas walking around stuff, your calves might get some stimulus. So by the time you first set foot in the gym, your calves might just be like early intermediates or intermediates, whereas your arms are complete beginners. So proportionately, progress is going to be slower on the calves than for other muscle groups. I think that might be part of why people often think calves don't grow up on being trained, because they're proportionately more advanced than other muscle groups would be. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a fair point. So um, I just have one, I guess, story, uh, and then we'll wrap up the calf topic. But I was on, yeah, I've been on the forums forever, you know, since I was 13. And I remember 
like this guy basically wanted to kick me out of his group because I was kind of argumentative about something. And there was this one guy clearly, you know, very genetically blessed when it came to Kaz. And he was given, you know, he's like, oh, this is my secret of how I do it. And it's the same stuff you always hear. I'll just hold the stretch a little bit. And this is why I have like 20 inch calves. And the guy who said that I was so like too pessimistic and like a negative, this guy, because I was saying, you know, th this is mostly going to be based on genetics. Like some people just aren't going to ever have calves like yours, et cetera. And the guy who was upset with me was a professional bodybuilder who was enhanced and had the skinniest like stick calves I've ever seen and had literally used, like was open about it, had used IGF-1 directly into his calves, had used Synthol directly into his calves, and it still just was not working for him. Like, I mean, I'm talking 13 to 14 inch calves on a professional bodybuilder. So, and I was like, bro, how are you going to tell me <laughs> that I'm too negative when I'm looking at like this, this these real world results? So I, I sometimes, I mean, see, because you're not denying genetic influence overall you're just saying maybe the calves aren't you know more whereas this guy was act like i just didn't understand the delusion um but if you've seen any of my podcasts you know i think a lot of bodybuilders have some delusional thoughts so uh, it was just yeah it was just very interesting to see that like happening in real time yeah i was gonna say this might actually be interesting to listeners as part of my phd i'm doing one study on the calves where i'm having people train one calf with a full range of motion and their other calf with a partial range of motion to see what produces better hypertrophy and strength outcomes. And as part of that study, I'm using the ultrasound to measure hypertrophy. Upon measuring, I don't know, half a dozen, a dozen people now, what I've come to realize, and I knew this before because people had told me, but it's very obvious when you do the ultrasounding yourself, people's shape for their calves differs widely. I've had people who their calf sort of ends 50% down their um, tibia, and people whose calves and uh, and like thirty five percent down their tibia. Like mm -hmm. for some people, the reading would be very consistent. You know, at fifty percent, you'd still see the calf pretty clearly, the gastroc. For other people, at fifty percent, you could barely even see there was a calf anymore. You know, yeah. um, so there's a wide variety of like higher calf insertions, lower calf insertions, and that can play a pretty big role in how they look uh, visually. Yeah, yeah, I um, I know there is similar models in rodents and i was joking to scott stevenson if you know him about uh you know like so i will i'm a dentist and, and so um there are times where like either for tmj or whatever reasons we'll do botox and i've joked about like if i had botoxed my left calf and just totally knocked it out you know would my right calf compensate or you see that in where they'll knock out like the soleus will the gas shot grow and, and whatnot like how extreme do we have to get <laughs> to see some right calf growth yeah, the studies where they knock out certain genes and stuff like that in rodents are also always pretty wild to me because imagine doing that with humans. Yeah, yeah. So so you mentioned your PhD. Um, so go into a little more detail there. What year are you in studying that and what are you looking at? Sure. So I'm currently entering my third year of the PhD. I started two years ago. Um, I'm doing my PhD on the effects of range of motion on muscle growth and strength. As part of my PhD, I've got four studies. The first one was a meta-analysis on the existing literature on range of motion and hypertrophy, strength, power, sport outcomes, basically every outcome we could care about. Uh, specifically, I get it slightly more towards hypertrophy and strength just because I've got several interests there. Like Personally, I'm going to get jacked and strong. Um, so we did a lot of cool sub-analyses like looking at what's better for hypertrophy, a four-range motion set, a partial range of motion set at long muscle lengths 
a partial range of motion set at short muscle lengths and so forth. We did a lot of cool sub-analyses to answer different questions. Obviously, with a lot of these questions and a lot of these analyses, you've got to keep in mind there's not that much data yet. So even the results of the analyses should be viewed as like, oh, maybe it's that way and it's likely, but not like this is definitely how it is. Um, so that's the first study. Then I conducted two other studies, one survey study and one interview study, where I asked for the survey study, just people training for muscle growth or strength, what they thought about range of motion in terms of how they applied it, how much range of motion they trained with, why they trained with that range of motion, uh, what sources of information they use for the range of motion practices. Like, you know, do you train that way because you see other people training that way, because you have, you read the evidence, because of, you know, a variety of things. Um, so that was helpful. Then the interview study was interviewing physique and strength coach, uh, strength athletes and coaches about their use of range of motion within the physique and strength sports to see how, okay, so recreationally, in the survey, I got around 750 people, which is a lot of people. Um, and that gave us a pretty good idea of what people at large do with regards to range of motion when training for muscle and strength. And then the interview was more so geared towards getting competitive opinions within the physique and strength sports on what they think of range of motion. And then finally, the last study, which I'm currently starting, like right now in a week or two, I should start data collection, is having people train their calves separately. So one calf is training using a partial range of motion, likely half the full range of motion in the lengthened part, so when it's more stretched out, and the other calf using a full range of motion for 10 weeks, two sessions a week, and seeing which calf sees greater hypertrophy and or strength adaptations following the intervention. And the good thing with the within subject design is that you can wash out a lot of stuff like nutritional differences between people, uh, sleep, stress, PDs, and so forth, because it's the same people. They just have two legs and we're comparing the two legs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that when you can do it with the same person. And as I've mentioned with my own experiments, I've said before, you can tell me if you agree, but I, I feel like something I don't really hear anybody talk about, and I, and I could see issues with it practically, is that if you're wondering if a certain method works, assuming, you know, like you couldn't do, okay, I'm going to do like West side barbell training on my right arm. And then, you know, like a bodybuilder program on my left. But uh, as far as like within reasonable variations, like I want to see if high volume is something that I respond to. I could understand as like a, certainly a beginner intermediate, like not wanting to waste the time. So I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this, but I think if you were curious, you could say, I'm going to do X thing for one side and just see if I have any difference after three months. And if I have literally no difference and, you know, maybe it's not worth my time. What do you think about that? Yeah. So there's pros and cons, right? The pro is that essentially you as an individual, you're trying to figure out what works for you because studies ultimately are only going to inform you about the average person. You know, you might be different from the average and until we have some way of knowing how different you are or in what ways you're different, if you take the studies and the results from studies and apply them to your own training, you might be missing out on individual individualization initially. And the only way to really figure out how it should be different for your training is to experiment by yourself, right? But the degree to which you're suggesting experimenting comes at the expense of potential progress, right? Because like with one person, it's very difficult to tell if something works better. Because with one person, you're taking one measurement every time. It's just not enough data to see if it's uh, consistently better or worse. You know, the sample size is just really small. Mm-hmm. And the measurement methods you as an individual have access to are quite rudimentary usually, like especially for hypertrophy. Sure, you can use a tape measure, but tape measurements have a relatively 
high measurement error, right? Um, and so especially when dealing with a single person, the benefit of using a study as a jump-off point is that there is more data and more reliable means of measurement. And so while you might be slightly different from the average, just by the nature of how averages work, you're likely pretty similar to the average person. Um, and so it's a good jumping off point. And from that, I think you can experiment with roughly equally likely to be good protocols. Like for example, a four range of motion versus a pretty four range of motion and see what was better for you. But then the issue with such um, similar differences in training, right, for one leg versus the other, for example, is that the difference in outcome might also be so small that it's hard to tell, you know? Sure. Yeah, I, I think realistically, like if you told me to try one of these experiments seven years in, I just wouldn't have done it. You know, I'm like, well, I'm just trying to get everything ideal right now. Uh, it was is one practical problem. And then the other thing is when you are advanced, as you alluded to, the results are going to be so slow. It's it's kind of hard to say, well, can you even tell there's a difference? Like it might take six months or more to even notice, which, you know, on that note is why I have a problem sometimes when I see some people who've been training 10 plus years and they do something it's like some small difference and they're saying it's this major game changer. And it's like, how are you going to say it's a major game changer when, you know, I mean, certain things could be, but like, oh, this one exercise variation changed everything. And it's like, come on, man. A hundred percent. When you see people say, oh, deadlifts, for example, build your back a lot. It's like, okay. Uh, and they're like, yeah, so Dorian did deadlifts and he had a really thick, dense back, you know? Yeah. Dorian did a lot of other exercises too. He did a lot of other stuff as far as PDs and stuff go. He had his own yeah. genetics. There's so many confounders that trying to claim that this one tweak in exercise technique or mind-muscle connection or exercise selection even is going to revolutionize your training is it's absurd, especially when you consider how... Okay, so training has an effect that's about this big, right? Let's say genetics has an effect that's about as big probably. And then if you subdivide the effect that training has on muscle growth into all of its components, right? So there's volume, there's frequency, there's intensity, there's repetition range, there's exercise selection. There's so many factors that for you to claim that this one tweak really made a big difference and using like an anecdote, like for example, I don't know, successful bodybuilders of the past, like unless there's the preponderance of them did this thing and saw success, right. unless that's the case, if you're just using a few, it's a losing argument in my view. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And, you know, we could certainly go down the nihilistic rabbit hole there, but it just, it does make me wonder. I mean, that's most of this industry, right? It, it, it's just like, well, try this thing. And I just, it's like, how do you know? How do you know that that is going to make any difference for even for an individual, but even just overall, I just, that, that's why, you know, I, for people who listen to the channel, it's not that I want to come across as like nothing matters, but I do believe, like you said, I think genetics are at least as important as the training aspect. And when you break down some of these small subcategories within training, like it used to be, I think I was just talking about, uh, who was I talking to? So it's one other guy recently. And I was saying how, you know, once upon a time, there were so many articles on like the perfect split. And I don't see people talk about that too much anymore, but it was like, man, once I changed to this split, and it's like, so now you're talking literally everything else is the same, including like the exercises you're doing. It, you're just splitting something differently. It's like, this was the game changer or I, I, I'm thinking of a specific name. I, I guess I'll leave his name out, but just a lot of examples of it, you know? Yeah. It's, it's appealing as an idea, right? Cause it's the quick fix. So people like to buy into it and it's easy to sell to people as well. Um, but ultimately that one small change, you know, you're, in this case, you're changing only the distribution of exercises and volume across the week, but the weekly volume, the weekly exercises and so forth 
they all stay the same, it's never going to make a big difference to your results. You know, unless you're at one extreme, like doing all of your training within an hour or in the week, moving to actually doing it reasonably across five days a week, for example, unless you're going from one extreme to a more reasonable point, if you're making a small tweak to something, in all likelihood, A, you don't know that it's going to have an effect, and B, even if it does have an effect, it's going to be a very, very small one and probably undetectable. Do you think that, to me, I feel like it's almost an unsolvable problem in the industry because the whole industry has to function on getting people invested. Everything on, you know, I don't have a TikTok, but I, I get people send them to me or, or like on Instagram, you almost necessarily, if you want to do well, have to make it sound like your services or your product are going to make a big difference. Because if not, it's like, well, here, just read this book from like 1995. It's going to be 98% accurate as far as what you need to do. Uh, as somebody who's directly in the field, I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah. So as you said, I think with a lot of industries like the food industry or dentistry, what have you, there is almost an inherent need for it, right? Because for health reasons or what have you, um, with fitness, a lot of people in the industry try to create a need so that then they can sell the fix for that need, right? So for example, the industry as a whole has, for better or worse, and I think for better for the most part, has glorified getting really jacked. And some people have glorified getting maximally jacked, right? And so offering a solution to, hey, look at you. You're not maximally jacked yet. You're pathetic. Here, try this method that I can sell you and you'll get maximally jacked like I'm telling you to get. Um, I think creating the need for first creating uncertainty and the need for getting more muscular or getting this adaptation or what have you, and then selling them the, the solution. I've kind of had the same experience where people really cling on to ideas, right? So I'm doing my research on range of motion. And as part of that, one big theme that's emerged and prior to the PhD, honestly, my bias probably was going into it was that for range of motion was best, but I've tried really hard throughout that PhD to remain open to other possibilities. And so what came out during the PhD as a whole was that training at long muscle lengths is productive for hypertrophy. And in general, from the response I've gotten from people, having an idea out there that's your own, like the long muscle length stuff, mm -hmm. people love to latch onto that idea. And I don't know, maybe I'm guilty too of selling a, a fix to a need, right? Because long muscle length is a new thing. You know, it's a new hot thing on the block now. Right. Uh, everyone wants to try it so they can maximize their hypertrophy. Um, so I think people are generally looking for quick fixes and the needs are created by the industry as a whole and by people wanting to get more jacked. But oftentimes these quick fixes, these new ideas, like I'm not saying that training at long muscle length is going to take you from looking like the average person on the street to Ronnie Coleman in two weeks. Um, it might make a small difference and that's my best guess based on the evidence, but I'm never going to market it as being like incorporate this in your training and you'll see the results you always wanted, you know? Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's the issue is the emphasis of, on degree. And I don't, again, I don't see a solution to it because I would not expect trainers and whatnot to preempt every video saying, Hey, just so you know, this tip I'm about to give you makes almost no difference. This nutrition advice I'm going to give you makes almost no difference. Like it's just, it would be kind of silly. Uh, I think the problems comes when you get, again, mostly beginner to intermediate effects where you get that whole Dunning-Kruger effect where people will see, they'll think 
wow, that person is an idiot. Look at them. They're not even training with, you know, this method. And I, I mean, when I was young, I used to think that too. I was like, look at the football team. And like, I remember thinking like, wow, like I could program better than them. And then I was like one year into training. And it's just because, and, and I mean, not that they were following that sound of a program, but they, it was fine. You know, it was working fine. And I think as long as people understand the degree of magnitude, it's not an issue to try for these little things. I would never say that, but just don't think that like somebody's an idiot because they're using like a bro split. Like you can still get massive using a bro split, right? There's plenty of, you know, things that are fine. Yeah. To be honest, I think it is mostly on, it is mostly on the people making the videos, making the content and so forth to try and have a bit of integrity regarding the magnitude of the effects they're talking about. Right. So like whenever I go on a podcast nowadays and talk about range of motion or muscle length or what have you on hypertrophy, I try and make it clear that the effects we're talking about are trivial to small. That is literally the magnitude of effects we're talking about. Um, and that ultimately, the vast majority of your results just come from training pretty consistently over years and years. And whether you're using a full range of motion or you're doing partials with low muscle lengths, ultimately, the effect between the two isn't going to be, the difference isn't going to be that large. Um, I think this is the thing with science communication, right? You got to make it interesting to people because otherwise people won't watch it and then science just gets left in the dust and you know it's just like uh, archived in some database and it gets five reads over 10 years which is the reality for a lot of papers nowadays um so you got to be communicating the science somehow but you also want to have the integrity of not claiming the effects are outrageous so there's got to be like a, a bridge you know like for example you're doing a good job with communicating science uh, another one is jeff nippard right jeff nippard makes videos on uh, the evidence that's out there and he generally does a pretty good job of communicating how important different aspects of fitness are or retraining are or nutrition are and i think that's really important because otherwise everything gets hyperbolic you know like you see this person talk about this quick tour technique or uh this back exercise that just got invented two weeks ago that's now going to revolutionize your training based on emg data that only the person creating it has access to right. um like Eventually, we have to stop being hyperbolic so that hopefully the industry can come to a bit more of a reasonable um, point in terms of estimating how big of an effect different things are, have. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, you had touched on, well, when you first came into your PhD, you had the bias of full range of motion. Um, I know now there's more talk about these like lengthened sets and, and whatnot. So has your opinion changed or what are some of the conclusions you're seeing in the research you're doing? Yeah. So as I said earlier, we did a meta-analysis and systematic review on range of motion and the effects it has on hypertrophy, strength, power, sport outcomes, body fat, etc. Um, with regards to hypertrophy and strength, that's what I'll focus on. With strength, it's pretty straightforward. What we did is we categorized performance outcomes, so that's power outcomes, sport outcomes, and strength outcomes, into being either biased towards a full range of motion or a partial range of motion. And what I mean by that is, let's say you're an isometric, right? An isometric, if you're training with a full range of motion or a partial range of motion, it doesn't really matter because neither of them is specific to the isometric contraction. It's not the same thing you're doing, you know? But if, for example, the outcome you're testing for strength is a full range of motion, one of max, then inherently the group training using full range of motion squats had an advantage over the partial range of motion condition, right? Because yep. they were being more specific. And so when we categorized outcomes as being either biased towards a partial range of motion condition or a full range of motion condition, what we saw is that training in the range of motion that you want to become better in, 
whether that's for like a, a sport outcome, like a sprint, or whether it's a four range of motion squat or a partial range of motion squat, training that range of motion consistently seems to increase how much of an improvement you see. So if you want to get good at four range of motion squats, do four range of motion squats for the most part, right? So be pretty specific in your training with regards to range of motion for performance outcomes. Now with hypertrophy, and that's where my personal interest mostly lies, it seems like the muscle length at which you perform partial repetitions influences how much hypertrophy you get. So generally, partial repetitions at short muscle lengths, think the top of the bicep curl, right, where your biceps are very shortened, those don't seem to be as good for hypertrophy as either full range of motion reps or partial reps at long muscle lengths, like the bottom of a bicep curl where your bicep is quite stretched out. Full range of motion reps seem to be slightly worse based on the data we have now than partial range of motion reps at long muscle lengths for hypertrophy. Now, we don't have that much data yet on hypertrophy specifically and range of motion, but in general, I think the takeaway here, and this is based not just on the research on range of motion when it's performed uh, with a full range of motion versus partial range of motion, it's not just based on that, but also on the isometric literature, where they compare isometric contractions performed at different muscle lengths and the effects on hypertrophy, and also on the literature on partial ranges of motion at different muscle lengths. So there's six studies on that now comparing the same range of motion, so let's say 50 degrees range of motion, but performed at shorter or longer muscle lengths. So there's six studies there as well, um, of which five show a benefit of longer muscle lengths and one shows no difference for hypertrophy. And also the interset stretching literature now, like there's some evidence coming out on stretching between sets and stuff like that. And there's some older studies and some newer studies as well. Uh, older studies and animal models where they stretch out, for example, birds wings for a long time. And so hyperplasia, so fiber addition. So usually with hypertrophy, you have a set number of fibers, muscle fibers, and they just grow in size. So you don't get new fibers. They just grow in size. With hyperplasia, you actually grow new fibers. And so that might be one of the differences between people genetically is that some people are just born with more fibers and are thus able to get bigger over time. Um, so when you combine the animal studies, there's some new studies in humans as well with similar ideas, but not the hyperplasia, just drastic muscle growth after training at long muscle lengths for a while. The partial range of motion literature, the full range of motion versus partial range of motion literature, and the isometric literature. Overall, the picture emerges that training at long muscle lengths for hypertrophy is really important. And so if I had to say for hypertrophy, a full range of motion is probably only better than a partial range of motion if and when it includes longer muscle lengths on top of the partial range of motion. And I'm open to the idea that partial repetitions at long muscle lengths may actually be more productive for hypertrophy than full range of motion. Yeah, that I know that, that classic bird study uh, is always mentioned with stretching. So it's actually convinced me the next week I'm going to take off from work and I'm going to get some straps and just hang from my bullet bar for about a week. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. So very good. Good luck. <laughs> know how it goes. Yeah. Um, the regarding the strength aspect, I had thought that I saw something recently. It might have even been by Stronger by Science saying that you know the idea was it's all it's specific to the range of motion. So partials you're going to get stronger partials. But then I thought I saw something recently that showed that actually full range of motion even improved partials more. Yeah, there was one study, and I believe it's the Polaris et al. study on the bench. Um, yeah, I think that sounds right. Yeah, that was so. I read that study uh, top to bottom. I think that's the only study, or one of the only studies that's shown that so far. Uh, so I wouldn't really read into it too much. I think a full range of motion approach to all your repetitions is a good default approach, right? So if I, 
I provided some recommendations in the meta-analysis at the end. If you want one sort of, again, all the effects between partial and full-range motion are trivial to small. So you're probably good with any approach. It won't be optimal, potentially, but it'll be good enough for most people. Um, but I think a good default approach, if you're just training for general strength and hypertrophy, is a full-range motion, and that's for a few reasons. Generally, when you group outcomes by, for example, hypertrophy outcomes, strength outcomes, sport outcomes, and so forth, directionally, all effect sizes were in favor of full-range motion. They were small, but they were all in favor of full-range motion mm -hmm. when all outcomes were grouped and not really you know, categorized properly. Also, a full-range motion is a lot easier to standardize because if it's full, it's full, right? You can keep it consistent pretty easily. If it's partial, unless you have specific landmarks you use, like for example, a machine can have certain stops or certain settings and so forth, a partial range of motion can be harder to standardize and thus can also make it harder to ensure you're training sufficiently close to failure over time or gauging progress as well. And a full range of motion to an extent can help you take care of those things as well. So I think a full range of motion approach can be a decent coverall or a decent default approach. But if you're looking to optimize adaptations, you might want to experiment with different approaches depending on your goals. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you can go back and look at a lot of bodybuilders who you wonder, was it an intuition? Was it luck? But a lot of times they would do, especially like a lot of like pressing movements, right? They would do the lengthened partials. Um, and, and to be honest, like that's kind of where I, I mean, I would say I do 90% range of motion, but I don't try to lock out every rep on, on like bench press, for example. Um, even with like my shoulder pressing, I... I, you know, I would get close, but to me, it almost feels unnatural to try to get that last 10% and it just feels smoother. Like I'm more in a groove, uh, less so for, well, I was going to say less so for back movement, because that's not necessarily true. Uh, I think for rows I do, and I see Brian Borstein talk about this a lot now, but like, I, I do think it, because to get a full range of motion, and this is something that I remember back in, uh, high school, I posted up a video and I was doing a barbell row. And all these people were telling me that I could do so much more. And I'm like, well, if I try to use a weight that allows me with like perfect form to bring it to my stomach, I have to use so much lighter weight, right? So just to get, let's say 75% of the way there, I could use way more. So um, I, I can see why people, especially on things like rows, there is that inclination to say, well, let's do some of these length and partials after the full range of motion kind of goes to failure for that specific range of motion. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. I think specifically for muscle groups where the exercises you use are very hard at the peak contraction or don't offer much tension at the lengthened position. So for example, dumbbell lateral raises, right? Mm -hmm. At the bottom, at the lengthened position, not much tension, if any. At the top, the hardest point, and that's the most contracted point as well. So for those, it would make sense to incorporate some sort of lengthened bias, whether that's pausing at the bottom, for example, in its simplest form, pausing at the fully lengthened position, proportionately allows you to spend more of your set at those lengthened muscle lengths and probably get more hypertrophy that way. Um, or if you want to be more extreme, what you can do is, for example, do a lengthened stretched reverse drop set, whatever you call them nowadays. There's several names out there now mm -hmm. uh, where you take a set with a four range of motion close to failure or however close to failure you want. And then instead of ending the set there, you continue, but just doing, for example, half reps in the lengthened range again to a certain RPE or proximity to failure. Alternatively, you can also just omit the full range of motion altogether and just do partials and the lengthen range. Or if you want to get really crazy, and uh, I'm not actually recommending this necessarily, uh, but you could just do isometric holds in the lengthen position, you know, just enjoy it. Do we have, I don't know, if, I forget if you mentioned this, but do we have 
studies showing the isometric was as helpful or more helpful? So that's a really interesting question. It's a question I keep coming back to because every time I talk about range of motion and long muscle lengths and so forth, isometrics and range of motion are inexorably tied together, right? Because um, an, an isometric is literally just no range of motion. A partial range of motion is some range of motion. The full range of motion is the maximum range of motion. So we don't currently have a systematic review of the effects of isometric contractions on hypertrophy compared to concentric and eccentric and so forth. Fun fact, like half a year back at this point, Mike Israel commissioned uh, a colleague of mine and myself to write a review on that topic. Um, but to be frank, it's been a very busy half a year. And so we haven't actually gotten around to it basically at all. Um, but that is a topic I'm really interested in. And, you know, the direct evidence we have on isometrics at different muscle lengths also suggests that isometrics at long muscle lengths are better. But whether or not isometrics inherently are better or worse for hypertrophy than dynamic contractions, I wouldn't be able to tell you, right? It's, it's a weird idea because it's always something that's been hanging around the back of people's heads in the fitness industry. Oh yeah, we don't do isometrics because they're worse for hypertrophy than dynamic contractions. But whether or not there's any truth to that is something I haven't been able to accurately tell or research myself. Yeah, it, it would be interesting. And again, this is based on nothing but feel and intuition. But like when I imagine, again, saying like a barbell bench press or really any variation of bench press, and I imagine doing the bottom half and I do that for 10 reps to failure versus the top half, 10 reps of failure. Like that just inherently feels so much more productive for my chest, right? To have that stretch and doing that, right? But I could easily see how a study would show that that would, uh, you know, show superior growth. When I imagine instead just having like a locked barbell there and just pushing, I just feel like not a lot is happening. Not that it's not hard. And again, this is just based on like feels. I, I'm not saying this is what a study would show. It's just from 18 years of training. I'm like, this, like, when I would finish a set, which I guess you would just have to measure by time, it's, it just doesn't feel very productive to me. I, I know you would probably get stronger at those isometrics over time. It just, I don't, I don't know if, if you can relate to that or if you don't agree. Yeah, I think I would also imagine that to me not, not be very stimulative. Like I wouldn't feel it as much as like a dynamic traction, I think. But ultimately, I don't know, as with me having the bias of four range of motion being best going into the PhD, I want to be willing to re-examine my biases as I progress sure. and learn more. Um, and to be frank, I haven't really tried that in the first place. So maybe I'm wrong about even thinking that it wouldn't feel as good, right? Um, so I'm, I'm trying to stay open to the idea that it might be possible, but I'm not saying, hey, everyone, uh, stop doing all those four-inch motion repetitions, stop dynamic exercise, just go out and do some isometrics, do some dead hangs, do some yeah. uh, block pulls against blocks, I guess, and so forth. So. Has this changed how you're personally training and, and have you implemented any of these like intense stretches? Yeah. So I haven't implemented any isometric contractions only into my training, mm -hmm. but I have basically on all exercises. Now I pause in lengthen position on every repetition, uh, whether there's tension or not, if there's no tension, like the bottom of a dumbbell lateral raise, it's probably not necessary because yeah. it doesn't get you much. Um, but I just do it for, standardization sake doesn't really matter because if there's no tension it's essentially just like resting for a second right right um on top of that for muscle groups like the back like the side delts like the biceps like the calves and like the abs mostly and the forearms uh where the failure point is pretty much always either at moderate or short muscle lengths 
I pretty much exclusively now use uh, stretch supersets. So a full range of motion set straight into a partial range of motion set for all my sets. Um, for the chest, tricep, quads, and hamstrings, where you do get a lot of tension at the length and position, and you get into pretty deep positions as well, right? Like at the bottom of an RDL, plenty of tension, and your hamstrings are quite lengthened. Same for the glutes, same for the quads during squats, same for the chest during bench, and so forth. So for those, I don't implement uh, quite as many stretch supersets, but I will do maybe a quarter to a third of my volume with lengthened supersets, just to slightly bias it to longer muscle lengths anyways. And then finally, I haven't actually implemented either any long muscle length asymmetrics or long muscle length partial sets only yet, but it's something I'd be open to in the future. I just haven't really gotten around to it yet. Yeah. I don't know how familiar you are with DC training with Dante Trudell, but I did that for a while. I had incorporated these stretches in the past. And then Scott Stevenson had fortitude training again, incorporated those. Um, and then even more recently did like the full DC program. And uh, they're obviously very intense, very painful. I would say it, it's so tough because again, at my stage where nothing's really happening, it doesn't mean that it's anything I do. It doesn't mean it's not working or it wouldn't work if I was more intermediate, right? But just it's not doing anything necessarily now. Um, and as we talked about at the start of the podcast, you know, even if it made a 3% difference, which would probably be fantastic if it did that, it's like, how am I going to measure that as an individual, you know, doing this seven years into training? So um, I'm open to it. I do think studies, you know, there's enough evidence to support it. Um, something that I have brought up and I've heard other people brought up or bring up is that, you know, if, if you're comparing, let's say a straight set versus a straight set, then a stretch, it's like, well, that is just more stimulus. What if you had just done a couple more reps, you know, or, uh, you know, half set or something. Um, and I don't know if I've really seen that. Like, that's one of my problems with this. Like, I'll see, you know, nothing versus stretch. And it's like, well, yeah, there's now a stimulus. Or I'll see maybe a set versus a set plus a stretch. And that's even more rare to even find that. But when they do, it's like, well, again, that's technically more volume. So it's still kind of confounded. Yeah, so that's one limitation with a lot of the range of motion studies and a lot of this reasoning around, for example, doing a stretch superset is that, yes, it's likely more stimulus. For example, doing partials at long muscle lengths might be more stimulating for hypertrophy than a full range of motion set, all, all things being equal, right? Let's say you take both sets to failure, but maybe the long muscle length set is more fatiguing. So in the studies where they only do, say, three sets twice a week, they're not having any issues recovering, right? Because it's six sets a week, they're fine. But what if you had enough time to train and you implemented these ideas and turns out if you're doing lengthened sets only, you can only do 10 sets a week and still recover fine. Whereas if you did full range of motion sets, you could do 15. And so the overall stimulus from those approaches is actually equivalent, all else being equal, right? right. Um, so that's one of the limitations with a lot of these studies. And I think one place you can look to to sort of quell some of those concerns would be the fatigue research on long muscle lengths. So there is some evidence out there, to my knowledge, that shows that contract contractions at long muscle lengths are a bit more fatiguing inherently than contractions at short muscle lengths. Now, it's possible that they are just inherently more fatiguing, right? With all else being equal. My suspicion is that at least part of that difference in fatigability, so how much fatigue uh, contractions at short versus long muscle lengths cause, is down to people generally not being accustomed to contractions at long muscle lengths. So in your 
if you walk into your gym, how many people do you really see doing full range of motion reps or at least getting a deep stretch on most exercises? Answer, not that many. Whereas contractions at short muscle length, so like a, a decently peak contraction, quite common. And so my suspicion is that in those studies, at least part of the difference may be explained by the novelty effect, whereby a new stimulus can cause more damage than the same stimulus that's already been, um, that you've already been exposed to at least a few times. Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that is interesting. I've seen, you know, some research showing, you know, it's kind of always thought that, okay, if a muscle contracts, the whole muscle contracts, and you're going to have uniform growth throughout, maybe a couple of studies showing that they're actually maybe even within one single muscle group, there are going to be differences in where the growth occurs. Um, I don't know if that's, I don't know if there's a consensus yet on like, well, this is possible, or maybe those studies are just outliers. So I guess that would be the first thing is what do you think on that? But then secondly, do you think that would then depend on this, these range of motion differences you're talking about? That's a really good question. Um, so we performed an analysis to see whether or not full range of motion and partial range of motion training protocols resulted in different distal versus proximal hypertrophies. Hypertrophies, it's a plural now. Um, the analysis wasn't highly pallid enough, so there wasn't enough data to really say for sure. Based on my systematic reading of the literature on topic, my hunch is that it goes as follows. Contractions or partial range of motion reps at short muscle lengths do a pretty good job of growing you proximally. So let's say, for example, for the quads, right? The proximal insertion point is at the hip and the distal insert insertion point is at the knee. So partial range of motion reps at short muscle lengths, they do a pretty good job of growing you near the hip. But at the closer to the knee, not so much. Whereas full range of motion reps and partials at long muscle lengths seem to do a pretty good job of growing you both near the origin point, so near the hips for the quads, but also near the um, insertion point, so near the knees. So they do a pretty good job for range of motion repetitions and partials at long muscle lengths. They do a pretty good job of growing you overall, whereas short, shortened partial range of motion repetitions only seem to go pretty well at proximal points and not so much at distal. Now, back in the day, and this was my thinking too a few years ago before I started the PhD, my thinking was that one of the reasons that full range of motion was best for hypertrophy was that it would induce uniform hypertrophy across the whole muscle. Mm -hmm. But based on the evidence I've read so far, it is true that a full range of motion promotes pretty uniform hypertrophy most of the time, provided especially you have a variety of exercises in your program so that you can hit it from a variety of angles and so forth. Um, but I think a partial range of motion probably only leads to non-uniform hypertrophy when it's performed at short muscle lengths. So if you're doing partials at long muscle lengths, you just might be covered. Um, I'm very open to that being wrong because again, uh, not that much data out there yet, but that's my hunch. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. You know, I mean, it'd be great if, if there was more conclusive evidence out there on like, and, and I, you know, how much of a difference would it ultimately make? I'd say most of the time, you know, once somebody is even five years into doing things correctly, you can kind of see what the general shape is going to be, right? And then they kind of uniformly grow from there for the most part. Um, but, you know, it'd be interesting to know, from, specifically from like a bodybuilding standpoint, when somebody says you got, you know, this area is a little bit weak, if there was ways to say, okay, well, maybe I can actually grow this specific part of this muscle group. I mean, I don't know if I see too many examples of that uh, in, in the natural world, at least, but it, it is interesting. 100%. I think 
for the people who want to sort of uh, theory craft or experiment, they could go out there and do just partial repetitions, short muscle lengths to really bring out the quads near the hips or the triceps near the shoulder or that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting idea. I think it's too early to really consider applying that idea to training yet. Yeah. So I guess a uh, final question I have for you is more in the realm of the research process itself. You know, one thing we hear about is it's like, okay, I want to have this study. I want to see this study. Why aren't these studies done? And inherently it's like, well, because practically every individual researcher just, I guess, stating it bluntly is probably going to be selfish in that they are going to want maximum publications, right? They're going to want things that show results so that they are more likely to be published. And, and so oftentimes studies, like I think, uh, again, Stronger by Science podcast just mentioned this with creatine, right? It's like, who wants to do a meta-analysis on like 400 creatine studies when they can do a meta-analysis on like eight studies on this other topic? Um, and, and you'll often see people who are trying to get through a PhD, for example, or a master's. It's like, look, I just want to have like my study done and I want to show that there are results. So I don't care if it's the fifth time or the 10th time this study has been replicated. This other thing is too hard. As somebody who's literally like right in the middle of the process, how much do you feel that pressure to get a publication done versus maybe going into something super novel? Yeah, so you're 100% right in that there is a lot of effort to push for publication and that non-significant findings, for example, are much less likely to get published than significant ones. And so as a researcher, especially if researching is your job right like you do it full-time you have to acquire grants for money to do your research and so forth and your um, citation index like how often you get cited by other people and so forth literally impacts your livelihood at that point there's a lot of pressure on you to put out significant findings and by significant i mean statistically significant so what people consider to be true findings let's say as opposed to uh, there's nothing actually happening and generally, journals are more likely to publish your study if it's a significant finding. Um, and that puts people under a lot of pressure to do anything from setting up studies in a way that would lead them to be to find an effect, all the way to straight up making up the data or making decisions, like, for example, how you analyze the data or how you format it, which subject you include or not, that sort of stuff. Like, there's From the outside, if you're not accustomed to reading research, doing research, and so forth, you can think of science as being like a monolith of truth, right? In reality, a much more apt analogy for doing research is it's very much a garden of forking paths. So you have so many decisions to make during the research process that if you really wanted to, you could find the result you want to find pretty easily. Um, and so it's really important as a researcher to approach things with... So I'm lucky in that my PhD is self-funded, so I pay to do my PhD, you know, I'm not getting paid to do it, mm. which means I can do the topic I care about, which is range of motion. But it also means, fortunately, that I don't really have a vested interest in finding significant results. If my studies on, study on calves, for example, finds that there's no difference, I'd be like, eh, that's kind of cool. I guess it adds to the body of evidence overall. And overall, the body of evidence still suggests that long muscling is so good for hypertrophy. It maybe takes it away from that conclusion a tiny bit, like it shifts it slightly. But it doesn't really matter to me what the study's outcome is exactly. And so I think because sports science is quite underfunded as well, like, you know, studies are hard work. We don't have much funding because, unfortunately, uh, priorities in the world right now are not to get us jacked. It's more so to get us to live long lives, which 
I disagree with, but right. semantics. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I've, as I said earlier, I've tried to not be biased throughout the research process. I've tried to be, um, to collect data in a way that wouldn't influence the findings either. And ultimately, I'm doing this research research because I care about it. I care about finding out the truth and not because I'm trying to make a living off of being a researcher, which I think is a good position to be in to conduct trustworthy research. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, it's always hard to take out the bias, but, you know, when you can do it as, as well as possible and, and be cognizant that it, it exists, and obviously that's helpful. Cool, man. Well, I thought this was a great talk. Uh, we're going on an hour. I want to be respectful of your time, but I'm sure we'll be talking in the future. So for people who are newly introduced to you, where can they find more of your stuff? Yeah. So first of all, thank you very much for having me on. It was an honor. I've been uh, listening to your stuff and Abel, I can't pronounce his last name. I heard you pronounce it earlier. I was like, wow, yeah. that's how you pronounce it. I was, I used shocked. to say it was, uh, I don't even know how I used to say it now. I think it was, I used to say Chabai. And then I had a Hungarian patient tell me it was Chabai. And even that, I don't know if I'm totally correct, correct but I know I'm closer. <laughs> Anyways, thank you for having me on. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at wolfcoach. So that's my last name, wolf and coach. Um, I have a wo- website called wolfcoaching.net where you can find my coaching stuff. I'm also a coach for Strong by Science. So if you want to get some coaching through Strong by Science, that's fine too. Um, I'm actually starting a podcast with a colleague of mine, the one I'm doing the systematic review on mm-hmm. isometrics versus concentrics and so forth on and who's also a PhD in sports science. And that's going to be called Muscle and Feels as a play on muscle and fitness. So that's on YouTube as well, starting in a few days. And yeah, I think that's mostly it. If you want to find my research, I have a research gate profile. So research gate, Milo Wolf, and you'll find it. And that's about it, I think. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again. Thank you very much.